What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of reality, history, and stress management. First, we'll be talking with Patty Alper about how to prepare our children for the real world. After that, we'll talk with author Matt Phelan about historical fiction and nonfiction. Our last guest will be David Barney, and we'll talk about stress and how physical education can help manage it. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with a selection from The Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, and we'll hear from Don Shaline about how books have changed his life. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's Even when I was a young girl, fantasy books have been a staple of my reading. One of the things I love about fantasy is the way that authors can take traditional elements and recreate them into something new. J.R.R. Tolkien describes this phenomenon in his book on fairy stories when he says, The cauldron of story has always been boiling, and to it have continually been added new bits, dainty and undainty. It's clear that all fantasy dips into the cauldron of stories to bring out bits both old and new to create new worlds. One author who uses the cauldron of story really well is Mercedes Lackey. Her newest series for teens is a perfect example of how traditional elements can be remade into something new as she takes the old lore of fairies impacting human lives and turns it on its head. In the first book, we meet Joy, who is trained from a young age in a remote monastery to destroy the infestation of fae that plagues the world. Now the walls built to keep the people safe no longer hold the other worlders back, and Joy is called to the capital to join their team of hunters. Even though the powerful elite are trying to hide reality from the populace to keep them complacent, Joy realizes that it's becoming impossible to cover up the truth. Playing a delicate game, Joy is happy just to do her job until her mentor is killed, and she must confront the city's secrets in order to establish a safe place for herself and the people she has come to love. Lackey's innovative imagination shines through as she continues to surprise readers with fresh characters and worlds. Envisioning a dystopian society where magic and mythical creatures reign supreme provides the perfect backdrop for the frank and powerful character of Joy. Even though the supporting characters often fill standard character types like bully, romantic interest, and outcast, their interactions with Joy give them much-needed depth. With some plot and setting elements only slowly revealed, the overall structure may feel laborious, but in the end, this device connects well with Joy's own path of discovery. Lackey has created something delightfully new here, and fans of fantasy and those looking for a book full of adventure should consider this tip from Rachel's World and check out Mercedes Lackey's books, Hunter Elite 
and Apex. Rachel's World. The world can be a daunting place for children, teens, and even for us adults. We need to be able to prepare our children for what's out there and help them build skills that will help them survive in the workplace. We're on the phone today with author Patty Alper. Welcome, Patty. I'm thrilled to be here, Rachel. Well, we are thrilled to have you. I am so intrigued by what you have to talk with us today because I think this is just a very, very important topic, especially for parents and other concerned adults who are looking to help their youth grow and develop and um, be able to be contributing adults in our society. One of the things you talk about is that our youth aren't prepared to compete in today's workforce. Can we start out today by you telling us why, why is that the case? Well, you know, I think, first of all, I wish that educators would ask this exact question. What do we need to do to prepare youth for the workforce? Because what's happening is the technological advances are so vast and at such lightning speed that education isn't really keeping up. And, you know, when kids are taught kind of rote learning and memorization and sitting in one class for an hour and then to the next class and listening. There's, they're not really getting this blend of technical skills and even social skills. And, you know, I was just reading Tom Friedman's recent book about how 2007 was such a pivotal year. We don't even recognize sometimes what we're living with. But that, in that year, the iPhone, Facebook, Twitter, uh, IBM bought artificial, the artificial intelligence machine Watson, the Android came out, and the Kindle came out. All those things in one year. And that's, what, 10 years ago. It's just been moving so quickly. I think the biggest concern is a misalignment between what the business needs are and education, because the business needs keep changing. Um, In my book, I've researched this. Uh, GE puts on something called the Global Innovation Barometer every year. 3,000 executives convene from all over, from 25 countries. Their biggest concern is a misalignment between business needs and education. So I believe that one thing that could be happening is that the education sector and the employment sector, the business sector, could begin to communicate more. We need to learn what is the new face of the new technology and what are the social skills required. So I think that's a good beginning, and I think that's part of the reason that kids are not prepared to enter the workforce. Those insights are very illuminating. And I love this conception of the workforce, the business world, and the schooling world connecting with each other. One of the things that you do advocate for in that kind of connection is the idea of project-based mentoring. So could you explain that to us? You know, it's a term that I have coined. I've trademarked it. Uh, I've written a full chapter on it in my book. Basically, what it does is it brings two different generations together around something to do. In education speak, you take 
project-based learning theories and you add um, a mentor, an advisor from a like profession to coach a student on getting their, their first accomplishment. The project is realistic. It has real-world application. Um, I have done this for 18 years now in the area of entrepreneurship. That happens to be my background. But I've, I'm suggesting in my book and in this concept that there's no reason scientists and accountants and engineers and bankers and filmmakers and radio hosts can't, can't also be coaching youth. And the sort of premise of it is that the student is the idea generator and the responsible party, the, the person that drives the activity. But the um, mentor has vast experience in the project's dimension and in its content. And together, in almost mimicking a work intergenerational relationship, I believe project-based mentoring is one vehicle that bridges this academic sector and the business sector and teaches both the technical skills and the social skills we were just talking about. I love that sense of the bridge because I really think that these kinds of programs that you're describing do help with that bridge, particularly with the social skills. You mentioned that several times. So what is it about these project-based mentoring programs that you think help students and, and teens particularly develop these types of social skills that they'll need for the workforce? Well, first of all, when you're working in this intergenerational relationship, uh, I believe a student has never really had that kind of dynamic with an adult. Normally, people in their lives who are grown up are authority figures and telling them what to do. Um, the first thing that I suggest in kind of creating an open dialogue and a safe space in this um, kind of dynamic on working our project is that you give up authority. This is the kids project. And I often will say to the student right off the bat, hey, this is your project. I'm going to make suggestions for you. I'm, I'm not your parent. I'm not your judge. I'm not your, I'm not grading you. I'm not your preacher. <laughs> I'm not your boss. I am your consultant, and I am here to advise and suggest, but guess what? You don't have to accept anything I say. It's yours. But we can talk about it, and I'll give you honest feedback, and I'll push back against you uh, with ideas, and I will be very honest. So what begins to happen is that you are being a kind of relationship that they can, they haven't had before and that they begin to mimic. You know, you say you're going to show up and you do. You push back with integrity and with honesty and if it's not accepted, you, you accept that. Um, it create, it's a different kind of a social dynamic, particularly intergenerationally. 
So I believe that just at the social level, you're creating a whole different um, kind of dynamic that they would not have experienced prior. That kind of dynamic, particularly intergenerationally, I think is a, a key component of these kinds of programs and, and that mentoring relationship that allows people to be partners more than I think anything else. So as they move through these relationships, what other types of things are happening here that you think help prepare young adults for the kinds of jobs that they'll be dealing with once they enter the workforce? You know, every year I coach kids. Um, My students actually launch companies. I help them launch companies. And they have to write a plan. And this is all done in inner city schools, with teachers, but it's all part of a nonprofit. Um, just as an aside, in the back of the book, there's like 40 pages of nonprofits that are um, listed by your industry. So if you were a scientist, where would you go do this? Anyway, um, at the end of each year, I go around the room and I ask all the kids, what did they get out of this? And this one kid, his name was Moses said something I thought was so brilliant. I've I've had to steal it. I have to quote him. He said, one of my big takeaways from this class is this. An idea without a plan is like air. It's nothing. If you don't do it, it's just talk. But a plan without an idea is like chaos. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're doing. So I have year in and year out observed students take an idea of their own that they're excited about and vested in and see that idea develop with a plan and have an impact. It, it's real, like it either turns a profit or it has a social impact, it's real. It's not just a thought. Um, And then they present at the end their idea with a PowerPoint and a public format. And they have to be succinct, and they have to become the educator about their idea and their findings and take ownership. And what I see... uh, is a transformation from that student from September through June, taking ownership of something. And it's, it builds so much confidence. Um, they've had to navigate through difficulty and with grit and to have an end game in sight and to get there. What's more is this project, and this could be any number of things. It could be a film. It could be developing an app. It could be a research environmental test. I mean, it could fit in any subject matter. But at the end of the day, they have something they've done. It goes on their resume. It goes on their college application. So they're, they're gaining skills. They're gaining uh, social interactions. And they're gaining an accomplishment and confidence. 
Am I too passionate? I'm sorry. Oh, please, please be passionate. I love the passion. And this, I think the passion is contagious because I start thinking in my own mind of all the ways that I could help mentor students through these kinds of things. And so I'm glad that you're sharing your passion with us. And I'm sure that our other listeners out there are going to to kind of start feeling the same way. So as, as we close our conversation today, maybe give us one or two tips as to maybe how could we get started in these kinds of programs? What steps might we start taking to mentor students for the future? Well, I would definitely consider what what you love, what is your field. Like you might be in communications, you might help people do interviews, let's say. Lots of students in doing projects have to go out and doing research, have to interview people. Um, so you first have to start with your interest level and your professional background. Um, that's why I developed this um, glossary at the back of the book. Um, and or you can go to your uh, high school, a community college, um, and talk to the community sort of liaison. Um, this is an adjunct role. It, it doesn't detract from a teacher's teaching, um, but this particular scenario of mentoring I'm describing is project-based. So there are certain um, schools that are schools of thought, like business or engineering or journalism, that might be more project-based. So there's, it just takes first saying, I'm ready to give back in the world. I think I have something that I want to share. I know that kids could use some of the skills that I have learned over all of this time. And please, let's deploy all of us. I mean, there's 78 million baby boomers that are beginning to retire with too much knowledge and, and time. Let's harness that, that skill knowledge base and use it to help our next generation. Patty, I appreciate your call to action. Let's all get out there and start looking at ways we can mentor and help. Thank you so much for your time today, Patty. Well, thank you. Patty Alper is an author whose focus is on helping youth to prepare for the world ahead of them. Next, it's story time with a selection from The Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, performed by Jeff Simpson, one of our hosts here at BYU Radio. In the civilized countries... I believe there are no witches left, nor wizards, nor sorceresses, nor magicians. But you see, the land of Oz has never been civilized, for we are cut off from the rest of the world. Therefore, we still have witches and wizards among us. Who are the wizards? asked Dorothy. Oz himself is the great wizard, answered the witch sinking her voice to a whisper. He is more powerful than all the rest of us together. He lives in the city of emeralds. Dorothy was going to ask another question, but just then the munchkins, who had been standing silently by, gave a loud shout and pointed to the corner of the house where the wicked witch had been lying. What is it? asked the little old woman and looked and began to laugh. 
the feet of the dead witch had disappeared entirely, and nothing was left but the silver shoes. Oh, she was so old, explained the witch of the north, that she dried up quickly in the sun. That is the end of her. But the silver shoes are yours, and you shall have them to wear. She reached down and picked up the shoes, and after shaking the dust out of them, handed them to Dorothy. The witch of the east was proud of those silver shoes, said one of the munchkins, and there is some charm connected with them, but what it is we never knew. Dorothy carried the shoes into the house and placed them on the table. Then she came out again to the munchkins and said, I am anxious to get back to my aunt and uncle, for I am sure they will worry about me. Can you help me find my way? The munchkins and the witch first looked at one another, and then at Dorothy, and then shook their heads. At the east, not far from here, said one, there is a great desert, and none could live to cross it. It is the same at the south, said another, for I have been there and seen it. The south is the country of the quadlings. I am told, said the third man, that it is the same at the west, and that country, where the Winkles live, is ruled by the wicked witch of the west, who would make you her slave if you passed her way. The north is my home, said the old lady, and at its edge is the same great desert that surrounds this land of Oz. I'm afraid, my dear, you will have to live with us. Dorothy began to sob at this, for she felt lonely among all these strange people. Her tears seemed to grieve the kind-hearted munchkins, for they immediately took out their handkerchiefs and began to weep also. As for the little old woman, she took off her cap and balanced the point on the end of her nose while she counted one, two, three, in a solemn voice. At once the cap changed to a slate, on which was written in big white chalk marks, Let Dorothy go to the City of Emeralds. The little old woman took the slate from her nose, and having read the words on it, asked, Is your name Dorothy, my dear? Yes, answered the child, looking up and drying her tears. Then you must go to the City of Emeralds. Perhaps Oz will help you. As the age-old expression goes, if you don't learn from history, you are doomed to repeat it. However, it can be difficult to get kids interested in learning about history. Today, I have one of my students, Megan, talking with author Matt Phelan. Let's take a listen. All right, we're here with Matt Phelan. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. First question we'd like to ask you, what do you think the benefits of historical fiction and nonfiction are for young readers? Well, I really think it's important... I think history is important to um, to keep talking about. I mean, I, one of the things I was struck when I was working on my book, Bluffton, which um, historical fiction about Buster Keaton, the silent film star, when I was a kid, 
And uh, I'd be at schools, and the kids would say, what are you working on next? And I'd say, well, who's heard of Buster Keaton? Nobody raised their hand. And a lot of teachers didn't raise their hand. And I said, who's heard of Charlie Chaplin? And very few hands would go up. And I said, this is not right. This is part of, you know, our culture, and uh, it's important to keep these things alive. And the same goes, you know, for the Dust Bowl or, or people like Nellie Bly, who I think every kid should hear about. Yeah. So yeah. it's all about kind of keeping history alive. I think so. And it's also a way of um, making, you know, it's kind of corny, but it's sort of like I think of finding the story in history. So we all go through history, and we sometimes get the dates and the, and the wars and the conflicts and stuff like that. But I'm more interested in these things you maybe didn't hear about, like Thomas Stevens riding around the world on a bicycle, which I did not hear about ever until I found that book on like a used bookstore you know, table. Um, and I think it's fascinating to, to show that history wasn't just this big event, this big event. It was just people like us living everyday lives, but they're living in this time. And how is that um, different? How is it similar? I think it's really interesting to think about that. Okay, awesome. And the way that you've chosen to portray a lot of these stories is through very, like, illustrative, heavy graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Why graphic novels? Well, I'm an illustrator. Uh, I started out um, primarily as a picture book illustrator, which I really still consider myself a picture book illustrator. And I was illustrating books written by other people. Um, and then when it came to this idea of The Storm in the Barn, which was my first book, I, wa- I knew it was going to be a longer book than a picture book, a middle grade novel. Uh, and I tried to write it as a novel. It didn't work out. And I realized... Um, I could tell it through images would be playing to my strengths because I see things in images. Uh, so I wasn't a comics person who said, well, I've always wanted to make a graphic novel. I was a picture book person that realized that making a graphic novel was the best way for me to tell the story. Um, so then, it, then I became fascinated with what a graphic novel can do with that combination of words and pictures and panel sizes and being able to use silence in your story, which was very important to me, to have nobody talking and have this, the images telling the story which creates this wonderful, you know, almost a dreamlike mood, which you can't get in any other kind of book. Right. So it's very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite book to write so far? Oh, that's a really hard question. Um, I really enjoyed writing my, my version of Snow White, which is taking Snow White and putting it in the Great Depression, because uh, on one hand it was interesting because I already had the framework of the story. Um, but then it was finding the story within that really meant something to me. So in my case, it became about the young woman and the boys that she meets on the streets and what that represented, um, that relationship represented. So that was really surprising um, how deeply I fell into that story in an attempt to make it my story, not just my version, taking Snow White and plopping the Great Depression, but finding what about those characters meant something to me and what I wanted the story to really be about, which is more than just the apple and the the queen and all that sort of stuff. Um, So that was very um, exciting to write, you know, because I was just surprising myself. Mm -hmm. Um, The book I have coming out in October, which I wrote after Snow White, I wanted to change uh, tracks a little bit. I I wanted to write something that was fast and funny for middle graders, you know, 150-page book, and I wrote this book called Knights vs. Dinosaurs, which is about King Arthur Knights fighting dinosaurs. And it's a comedy. And I had so much fun writing that book, um, which was great. You know, I was reading this book about um, Tom Petty, a musician who sadly passed away. And uh, he had some quote about, like, if you're, if you're having fun with what you're doing, there's a good chance you're on the right track, you know? Mm-hmm. You, should be, you should be an element of fun. It's hard work. 
but there is an element of fun to it that I think um, should signal you that you're on to something. Right. Awesome. Well, your passion for your Snow White novel really showed through. I read that the other day, and it was amazing. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, what were some of your favorite books that you read growing up? I was a big fan of Lloyd Alexander, um, the Pride and Chronicles, and, and his other books, too. He actually lived in my town, oh. Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania, which I knew about at the time, but I was terrified to go to his house. Mm-hmm. I think we drove past it a couple times. I'm like, oh, there's Lloyd Alexander's house. And it was a different time, you know, that we didn't have authors come to schools or anything like that. Authors were this thing. And I respected him so much. I was like, well, I'm not going to go see him. And then I got to high school, and I met this kid, and we were just chatting about books and stuff like that. And we mentioned Lloyd Alexander, and I told him my, my fear and all of him. And he said, oh, I just knocked on his door one day. He was really nice. <laughs> and I felt like, oh, I should have done that, and never, never did. So uh, Lloyd Alexander books were, were big for me. He was probably my favorite author when okay. I was a kid, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so with your historical novels that you've done, with your historical graphic novels, how do you go about the process of doing research for those? I, I love research. And for me, research always starts visually, mostly because I'm working the graphic novel. So old photography, um, I can't pass up an old photograph. Um, I don't know if your radio audience listens where we are here in this building. I found the, the photographs are in the hallways of this building over the years, and I just had to stop and look at them. Because um, it just uh, there's something magical about an old photograph. The story in the barn, my first book was about the Dust Bowl, and the Dust Bowl was a really interesting um, situation because during the Great Depression, the Works Progress Administration was a way to get unemployed writers and actors and stuff something to do. Mm-hmm. So they sent these photographers to document the Dust Bowl, but it wasn't just some person with a camera. They were the best photographers in America. So the the images are breathtaking. So for me, it always starts with images. Um, and, but I do a lot of research for, um, you know, I read about costumes for around the world. I read about history of the world, history of the bicycle, biographies, obviously, about the characters I'm writing about, uh, and music, too. I'll put together a playlist. Um, so for Bluffton, I, you know, I, didn't, I had some sort of Joplin rags that would be more time period. But since it was about Buster Keaton, and I associate Buster Keaton with the 20s, I listened to 20s music, and Snow White was the same, 20s and 30s. Um, so I find music is a good way to get into the, the mood. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, what would your advice be for aspiring authors and illustrators? If you're an author or an illustrator, is just be, do the work right now. Don't worry about how am I going to get this published, how am I going to get a book deal, how am I going to do this stuff. Concentrate on the best work you can do. The more writing you do, the more drawing you do, the better you're going to get. So if you're working on a portfolio for illustration, there's 12 really good pictures. Keep working on them. Keep learning from your mistakes. Write as many stories as you want, as you can. Revise them. Go on to something else. Keep writing. Because I tell people that publishing is very difficult to break into. And there's a lot of factors that you have no control over whatsoever. A lot of luck, a lot of timing, what this editor happened to be looking for when you come in, all this kind of stuff that you have no control over. But the one thing that you have 100% control over is your sample. It's either your drawings, your portfolio, or your writing sample. Mm-hmm. And that's the key that's going to get you into publishing. So that's the one part you have 100% control over. So don't be like writing and saying, well, now I have to show this to somebody, i got to put this online, blah, blah, blah. Work on your craft. Mm-hmm. Get good. The more you do it, the better you're going to get. And then, on the, on the other hand, 
The other part, of course, is you want to be a writer, read. If you want to be an illustrator, an artist, look at art. You know, uh, everybody. You can learn from everybody, um, and that's absolutely important to not get in a bubble. Yeah, good advice. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. That was Megan Andrus talking with author Matt Phelan. Matt is an award-winning, best-selling author who likes to write historical fiction for younger readers. History and books can make such a difference in our lives. Next, we'll hear from the station manager here at BYU Radio, Don Shaline, about how books have influenced his life. Do you have any moments that reading you notice it made a difference in your life? Actually, I have a pretty early one. I had an older sister that used to read to me when I was like in kindergarten. I just remember really enjoying those stories, the little Dick and Jane type things. By the time I got into first grade, I knew how to read. And at the time, that was like not normal. And because I so enjoyed those stories and kind of reading along with my sister, I was able to read in first grade, and they said, well, this boy is too smart for the first grade. We need to skip him to the second grade. And so because of learning to read and enjoying those stories, I skipped a grade, and that traumatized me the rest of my life. So <laughs> anyway, reading was a very early thing for me that I really enjoyed and continued on throughout, even today. I, you know, I love to read all different kinds of things, and, and with e-books and things like that, that makes it a lot easier now. What is it about books, in your opinion, that has the ability to make an impact on so many people's lives? Boy, I, I just think that it, it opens horizons. It, it can take you into places that you hadn't considered. And what I like about reading is that there is this kind of soundtrack going on there that where you create your own scenes, your own scenery, your own characters. You, kind of, you can see them and, and hear them. And, and I think that a well-written story, well-written lines are, are magic that way. You are a very avid reader. How have you been able to make time for reading throughout your life? Mm, you have to squeeze it in. Sometimes at the gym, I, I know this isn't the most efficient way to work out, but you get on some of the cardio machines and it's like, great, I can read now. You know, I can uh, I can hold a book and read uh, you know, on the treadmill or the, the cycle or whatever. So squeeze it in like that. Often vacations are a great deal. Like you go to a place like Hawaii and uh, just enjoy the sun out there by the beach and you just have a nice book. And have you noticed that books have had an influence on your life in your later years as well? Yeah, you know, I, I'm still being inspired by some of those classics and uh, stories that uh, everybody's been reading. Was there a time in your life when you really were able to discover your passion for reading? Well, first of all, the, the life changer on an elementary school level were definitely the Dr. Seuss and the P.D. Eastmans and those kinds of things. I read those over and over because they were just so fun. They tripped off the tongue so well. Later, though, I, I really enjoyed biographies, historical type things. A lot of it, being in business, there are a lot of things about how-tos in businesses and, and uh, relationship type books. Some of them that, that have been very inspirational. Honestly, I have to uh, also come out here and say I love reading owner's manuals. You know, those big thick things that come with a car or with the refrigerator or something. I'm the guy that actually reads those through and go, oh, wow, that's interesting. I didn't know the ice maker could do that. If anybody wants to know what that owner's manual says, give me a call. If you had to choose just one book that was your all-time favorite, what would that be and why? Um, man, one book. That is real hard. Les Miserables touched me in, in a lot of ways, That the story, the essence of that. I really like the storyline of Les Miserables.
Physical education certainly can be hit and miss with students. Those who are more athletic may really enjoy it, while others who aren't may not. But we can all agree that PE benefits students in so many ways. We're in studio today with David Barney. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good to be here. You are a professor of physical education here at Brigham Young University, and I think that physical education and just the sense of health and education is just a wonderful topic that sometimes I think we think we understand it and we think we understand the aspects of how helping our bodies can help us just be better people and interact with the world better. So let's maybe break this down into into something that will help us get a little deeper. But really, what are the health benefits of physical education? Well, I think there are quite a few, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, in, in the schooling for the kids, you know, again, we're finding that the kids are, are being physically active, going back to class. They're better learners. Uh, they're more involved. They're more focused. Um, we're finding that it, it helps reduce stress in people's lives. Uh, years ago, my younger or my older sister came was here was at BYU, and she was getting a master's in speech pathology, and she said it was a very challenging um, program. And uh, she said, what was her salvation was she'd go to class, and I guess she had to do clinical hours and whatever else she had to do. But she said in the evening she'd go jog, and she says jogging <laughs> saved my life because she was it was very stressful, and she had to maintain certain grades and do certain things. And she said I could go jog, and it just kind of kind of washed everything away. Um, we're just we're just finding that it, it, it helps helps us manage our stress better. That is. Such an interesting health benefit. I think sometimes we realize it, but it may just not right. be a conscious thing. So what is it about physical activity that, that helps us with stress? Have you found anything well, along I, those again, lines? Again, I'm no physiologist or whatever, but, you know, it, it, it's just it's a way to unwind, to release, to let go. Uh, we, we surveyed and did a little study here with some kids at BYU, the, the activity classes, and and we asked him, we said, you know, just coming to this, just coming to the, the stat classes, the student activity classes, does it help relieve your stress? Because I'm of the opinion that college kids are stressed out. <laughs> they are. <laughs> A little. And, and so they said, yeah, they, it does. I can come here and for 50 minutes, I can run up and down the court or I can play volleyball or I can go swim or I can do whatever I need to do. But it helps me unwind. Okay, gives me a break from my classes. I can think of other things. Um, I had one student who says I'm a mechanical engineering student, and I can just forget about mechanical engineering for 50 minutes. He goes, that is what I need. And and then and, and they've also said that it gives them a chance to come <laughs> and to talk and to just kind of maybe it's free therapy maybe, but it, it helps them to manage their stress, um, to get out, to move, to sweat. Um, to, to kind of clear their heads, so to speak. And so uh, from, from a college kid's perspective, a college student's perspective, um, they've found it to be a great way to relieve their stress or to get rid or to lighten their load, so to speak. And, and a lot of them said, you know, I haven't gotten better grades, but it just, it just makes me feel better. I feel better about myself. And I'm like, I think that's pretty important then. Well, and that is pretty important. I think when we feel better about ourselves or when we feel more confident that – everything is just better. Our outlook is better. And uh -huh. all of the way we interact with the world right. is just better. 
So how do we help our kids really kind of find that joy? How do we help them find that joy of just doing it for the health benefits? I I, I think there's the fun social benefits, right. but, you know, a lot of us, you know, don't find joy in this kind of physical activity. So how do we build that foundation to help our kids get to that point? As, from a, from a, an adult or a parent's perspective is is get those kids involved as soon as you can. Get, get them out there. Um, like I say, go out and play catch with them. Go out and shoot baskets. I mean, walk around the block. If you have a dog, take your dog for a walk. Um, just get them out. Get them. Get them going. Um, and, and again, make them and maybe have them pick and choose what they want to do or what what what's enjoyable for them. Um, we, we again, we we see that video games, the the, the cell phones, uh, the iPads. I mean, they're cool and they're great, but man, they are overtaking people's lives to the point where they're not moving an inch. <laughs> and you know, the old saying, "You pay me now, or you pay me later." They're going to be paying for it later because of all of the screen time, that the, the, you know, the sitting down type of stuff. And so, um, find things again they like that they can pick. That they would, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get them interested and, and do it. Do it frequently. You know, that brings up something interesting that you may know nothing about, but I, I'd like your opinion on it at the very <laughs> least. You know, one of the things that that I have done with with reading, at least, as I say, you know, it's hard to get them away from the screen sometimes. So what you want to do is pick things that that have reading attached to them. So if they need their tablets or if they're, you know, they need that, then then make a game that actually includes reading or right. something like that. So I think the same might be true of physical activity. There's lots of really great games out there that include these kinds of physical activities. So what is your opinion along those lines about, you know, video games or other kinds of technology related things that help us engage in physical activity? Well, you know, some few years back we bought a, a Wii the the Wii and one of the games or discs we bought was the Wii games, you know. So you can you can play a, a multitude of games that are that are that are physically active, and they're fun, but it's not the same thing for me. It's just yeah, I don't know. I just I mean yeah, it, I mean that's kind of an interesting dichotomy because if the purpose is to get up and get physically active, I think right. they probably fulfill that role, but they don't fulfill some of these other roles. So what are some of the other roles that these games don't fulfill for you? What why why is it not the same? I, 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 there's something about, you know, for, for me, I, I enjoyed playing basketball as a young boy. And there was something about going in my backyard with me and a ball and a basket. It was just a time to think, um, to be outside. Um, there's something about playing with the ball in your hand and getting familiar with it and comfortable with it. Um, I, I guess there's just a lot of underlying... Uh, things like just being by yourself and thinking through. Um, and, and then if not, then you have your brother or sister, your neighbors come over and you play. Um, that I, I don't think a computer game can give you. Um, I just, I just, there's no substitute, I don't think. So how do we do that? I mean, as adults, one of the things I advocate for is just the modeling of it. You know, if we want our kids to read, then we need to yeah. read. And I think the same is true of physical activity. If we want our kids to have physical activity, then we should have physical activity. So what tips would you have for adults who maybe are a little less active or maybe didn't build this joy and love as a child in some of these physical activities? What can we do for us to help us be more engaged? Well, find something you like. You know, if you like to be outside, go hike. Um, th- there's nothing wrong with going to the mall and walking around the mall. I mean, walking is, is I mean, 
again, I played lots of basketball. My knees aren't as good as they used to be. Walking is wonderful. I like to walk. Um, and there's great benefits that come from simply walking. <laughs> uh, but there, there has to be something that, 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 that you can find that you like. And if, you find, and if it's important to you, then you'll make time for it. Um, that's what my father used to tell me. If it's important, you'll make time for it. It's true. And, <laughs> he and was so, right. <laughs> but as, as we get older and the doctors start saying, hey, you need to get out and get working or get, get out and be physically active. If not, you're going to be six feet under, so to speak, here in so many months or years or whatever. Then our motivation changes. But th- there has to be something, something, anything that you can do that will raise your heart rate up somehow. Swimming, um, biking, um, golfing, tennis. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you can do. And so if you say there's nothing out there, you're wrong. There are plenty of things out there you can do. <laughs> it it sounds so simple. I like things that are simple like that. I, I yeah. think sometimes the hard thing is the motivation. So how do we motivate ourselves and our kids? What are some simple tips that you know, help motivate us? Having Having someone to do it with is probably one of the best things you can do. A spouse, a friend, a neighbor, mom, dad, brother, sister. It really, I mean, it helps. And, and, you know, you can, you can, I've found, it seems like you can go a certain amount of time and then you kind of hit a wall and you need maybe a little encouragement. And that can come in with a, a friend, um, a neighbor, a spouse, whatever it might be, and, 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 and go together and do things, things together. And it, and it makes it more enjoyable. And you kind of, you kind of check each other. Tomorrow, yeah, same time, ready? Yeah, we got it. We got it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that really is a wonderful thing here, just about physical activity being a family affair. Yeah. I mean, our kids in our lives can be our, right. <laughs> our buffer and our help, and saying, okay, today we're all going to go do this, and, yeah, and making it that kind of communal social experience. And, and, it, and, it, and it can be done without any pain or discomfort. Well, that that I would hope. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time today, David. Thank you. David Barney is a professor of physical education here at Brigham Young University. It was great to be able to talk about PE and how it can help us and our families. But before I leave you, I'm going to step around the librarian's table with other librarians from around Utah to talk about children's books and life at the library. Today, I've got Emily and Taylor with me to continue our discussion on editing, particularly as it pertains to plot. I think from the very beginning, um, you should be able to tell what the main conflict is going to be. Um, I mean, you don't have to reveal right away all of the elements, but you should know there's, you know, the clear rising action, there's the clear climax, and there's the clear falling action. Yeah, and, and Emily, you were telling us earlier about an experience you had in a writing class where they were actually looking at manuscripts and and how you could kind of tell some of the plot and conflict and whether it might be a good book just from that experience. So expl- yeah. explain that to us. So yeah. it, was a, it was a really cool experience. We had a publisher from Shadow Mountain come. Or, or an editor from Shadow Mountain. I think it was a head editor from Shadow Mountain come, and we got to actually read uh, a manuscript from their slush pile. And when you pull up the manuscript, they kind of give an outline of the plot of the story. And then they'll have, like, the first chapter, the first couple pages that they can read to kind of get an idea of the writing as well. But sometimes they don't even get past the plot, like, outline, if they don't think that mm-hmm. it's a good enough plot. So having a good plot is... So it's 
pinnacle. Like it's, it's crucial. crucial. If you want, that's, that's if you like, want, I was like pinnacle. If you want your yeah. crucial is what I want. <laughs> manuscript to go through. Yeah. And so something that we also mentioned earlier was not having too many plots. Mm-hmm. That yes. if you looked at they're trying to bring up weight. And I think that's popular in contemporary fiction right now is they want to talk about so many topics. Mm-hmm. They Writers have a lot of feelings. <laughs> they have a lot of things that they want to get across. Yeah. But I think it's important to have one overarching yes. point that you're trying to make to your book. And you and I think subplots are beautiful things. Yeah. They they can be what really pushes some really hard topics are sometimes done better in subplots. Some really deep maybe emotional trying mm-hmm. things but they need to be done tactfully and you can't do too much yeah. of that. And I think that's one of the tricky things. I I read a book recently that it was like that. You know, they were talking about bullying and about um, abuse at home. And there was a romantic subplot and all of this kind of stuff. And by the time I got to the end of the book, I'm just like, I'm tired. (laughs) I I can't take that much drama in one story. We talked about how it's like a um, reality TV show that went five seasons too long. (laughs) Which I know of many. Yes. How can one person have so much drama in their life? It's not realistic. Yeah. It no longer becomes yeah. a realistic fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think, too, partly for me, a story has to have some low points, right? Because if your tension or your conflict is always at the heightened level, yeah. that's when you do get kind of exhausted. And I think, you know, when you look at it kind of from an editing eye, too, You'd get exhausted <laughs> thinking, oh, I'm done. Oh, where is this yeah. going, right, kind of thing. So, I mean, what are some great plots you guys have read? Well, I'm going to be that person and I'm going to say Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally be that person. Something that I love about J.K. Rowling's writing is that you will find something in the seventh book that connects all the way back to the first mm-hmm. book. I mean, I don't, I assume everybody reading this or listening has read Harry Potter. <laughs> and if they haven't, sorry for they the have spoiler. to have spoilers. Yeah. But that, that Snape loves Harry's mother. Yeah, they had ink, like kind of snippets. She had snippets of that throughout the whole series, but we don't find out mm-hmm. until the end. Yeah, but she knew that that was going to happen. I love those Easter eggs in books, and that's done through really, really clever plot lines. And that a writer needs to understand that every single thing that they include in their book. Like I said, I think there should be low points. But you should take out anything that does not contribute. Mm -hmm. If it's not necessary to the plot, it should not be there. And I think the fact that that's such a long series and long books, but they all still contribute to this plot just shows that it was beautiful plot making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how to say beautiful plot writing. <laughs> it's really beautiful writing. Yeah, well, it's beautiful writing for a lot of other reasons. But yeah. I, you're right. The plot arc is lovely because each book has its own plot arc, and then all seven books have a mm-hmm. larger plot mm-hmm. arc, which makes it even more complicated, right? Because yes. some series don't do that, right? Some yeah. some series they have actually just a whole series plot arc, mm-hmm. but there really isn't an individual plot arc. In each book, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think for me, I like the individual and then the overarching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I just read this book. It was called um, The Smell of Other People's Houses, I think. Oh, oh. very nice book. Yes. And I just love that title. I know. I read that book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's evocative of the plot just from the title, isn't it? Yeah. And I think there's four major characters and it switches between their points of view, which... I can I sometimes hate because 
when it's not done well, yeah. it's just a pain to read. Well, and that complicates the plot too, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. But the the author of this book did so well. Um, and just at the end, all four of those plot lines converged, and you could see all these connections. Kind of, kind of like Harry Potter, you could go back and realize, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> this um, this one thing that happened was um, you could see it how it affected the other three and. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just I, yeah, I think it was that goes along book. with the thought that everything you include in a book should be pushing forward your flaw, your yeah. your plot, your, your plot, plot. <laughs> yeah. your your flaw of the plot. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, and I I was thinking Taylor earlier. You were saying how much you love Jane Austen, right? Mm-hmm. And I I think for her, she is like the most amazing plotter on the planet too. She's mm-hmm. one of those ones I would put in Harry Potter category, right? Yeah. Because her plots are very simple, right? You can describe mm-hmm. them in like one sentence. But the way she gets you from point A to point Z through the plot has such beautiful complexities that then enhance the theme, right? Mm-hmm. When you think about sense and sensibility and pride yeah. and prejudice, mm-hmm. right? It's it's actually the plot that gets you through what those meanings of those titles are, right? right? And so it's just – but they're very simplistic at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's – plots don't have to be all complex or anything. They can be very simple. Yeah. Indirect. I think some of the best books have a very simple main plot, and then the subplots are where the complexity comes in. And it makes it that much do better. Do I have time to mention a pet peeve I have? You about do. This? Please do. Please so mention your pet thought... peeve. I love it. Okay. The one plot that I absolutely loathe above all other <laughs> is the plot where you have a happy beginning. Like, you have a problem. I call it the chick flick plot. Um, <laughs> but it's often in books, too, and yeah. it drives me crazy, and I can't sit through them. When you have a problem and it's quickly solved with this idea, but there's some lie that's tied into it. Oh. And then it comes out mm-hmm. later after you're like, oh, everything's going to be happy. But then you know that the yeah. lie has to come out. <laughs> yes. So it's like the whole time where Every you know something's getting yeah. better, but yeah. you know that there's something bad, that there's some lie, something yeah. out of someone's stupidity. I think that's the biggest, that it could easily have been avoided, then comes out as like the resolving conflict, the big conflict at the end. But you knew it was happening the yeah. whole time. So you have this anxiety the whole time you're reading <laughs> or watching because you know, yeah. you're like, I can't even be happy about this happy stuff that's happening because I know <laughs> this is going to take gonna it come down. Out, that this yeah. lie is going to come out. Just kidding. I was using you, but really I love you. Like yeah. thing comes out. Yeah. You follow that. That's so easy to follow, but also so it causes me, I'll, I'll get an ulcer like reading those. <laughs> like I can't read those books anymore. I can't watch those movies anymore. So I think yeah. get more creative. Like maybe, I don't know, make us feel happy for real. <laughs> And I don't know. <laughs> that that really is the tricky part there because, you know, what they're doing is they're kind of manipulating us as a reader, I think, is what you're feeling, right? And I don't like being manipulated mm-hmm. in the no. plot either, right? And I don't like it when an author tells me s- something as a reader, but they don't tell the characters, right? Yes. And it's like, if only the characters knew this, you know, it, it, <laughs> that's a horror movie plot yes. for me. It's like, yes, I know there is an axe murderer behind that door, but the characters obviously don't. <laughs> or, just, or just don't yeah. make your character stupid. Yeah. 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 A real person yeah. would think through this and be like, yeah. wow, that's really dumb. I've watched every chick flick ever and know that if I you keep don't this lie. secret, that it's going to yeah. come out later. Yeah. Make, make your yeah. characters intelligent. Yeah. And I think that yeah. makes the plot more complex. And mm-hmm. that makes the plot intelligent right Mm -hmm, because that's the 
the progress that we're going to make. I think, well, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but when it's obvious that the characters are only doing something so that the plot can move forward. Oh, yes, yes. Is just, yeah. oh, that really irks me because it just feels so unnatural. Yeah. And the so, author just isn't being created. Yes, yeah, I think exactly. it shows yeah. bad writing. Yeah, yeah. I would agree that when when you feel like this is out of place or mm-hmm. this is something or this is so cliche that they've done it before, yeah, mm-hmm. that shows bad writing, bad plot. Yeah, yeah. and we said before, like, um, only things that drive the plot forward should be in the book, but... Not it, if it's unnatural. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is one of the tricky parts of writing, right? Yes. It's, it's like this sense of, well, you do this, but only if, but maybe not, and this if, and it. The importance <laughs> of having someone else read you writing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because somebody's going to look at it very differently. So, okay, all you authors out there, you know what the pet peeves are. So no more. <laughs> no no more, more of that. Please. Come on, please. No more. We're done. <laughs> We're not going to read those anymore. So we'll move on to other other bigger and better things in our reading. How's that, ladies? Yes. Perfect. I love it. (laughs) I'm so glad that we've been able to have this time together. We first heard from Patty Alper, an author who talked with us about how to prepare our children for work. Then we heard from author Matt Phelan about how important historical fiction is for young readers. Our last interview was with David Barney, and we talked about stress and how physical education can help us manage it. Then we went around the librarian's table and talked with Emily and Taylor about plot. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it at the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger. Our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Tanner Rawl. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to all the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us.